justification to like just leave Facebook to be like, ah, you know what? I didn't sign up for Meta, so I'm out. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I want. I want to check it out. I want to see it. I want to. I want to go live in the metaverse for a little while and see what happens. But, uh, <laughs> meta, 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 in the internet age, meta. Can meta. I just take a moment to say, just to point out, because I have, I've never aired this grievance. By the way, let's just jump into it since we're just doing riffs anyway. For free and hi, Chuck. It's Father Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> Father Chuck is here. Uh, Masters Divinity. <laughs> You know, you know the drill. Um, I just want to say, like, I, I don't think there is a back end that I hate and despise more and dread visiting than the Facebook page back end. What do you mean by the back end? Like, you know how you make Facebook pages? Like for our, yeah. like the Masters of Divinity page, oh right, the right, back right. end where you like check all the analytics and you do all oh the creative stuff. Oh my gosh, yes. Oh, it's terrible. It's a living nightmare. And the thing is, is whatever for whatever reason, whenever I get like I see that you've posted that yeah. Cl- or sorry, sorry that uh, our director of social media, Cliff Booth, <laughs> has uh, yes. has posted mm-hmm. content. I always click on it because I'm like, oh, check it out, and it always takes me to the back end page. <laughs> And I'm like, no, this isn't what I wanted. Yeah. Why are you automatically subjecting me to this hell? <laughs> it is hell. Like many layers of hell. There are times where I'm like, I can't, I can't find the tab to create something. I just see like, it's like begging me to create an ad. Please, I'll give you $2 to make an ad, please. <laughs> like, Every week, I post a YouTube link on the St. Mary's Episcopal Church facebook page for my weekly bible study christian formation offering and every week like do you remember when it used to just be you you pasted the 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 hyperlink text in like a bar yeah and then it would then there was that like beautiful time when they automatically it automatically popped up the link as like a preview yeah and then you could delete the hyperlink text oh, and yeah, just yeah. put in whatever nonsense you wanted to say. Uh-huh. Um, and it, and it stayed there and then you just hit post and it was there. Yes. Like it was, it was, it was basically one step, mm-hmm. maybe two, two steps because you pasted and hit send. That's all you had to do. You didn't have to delete out the, the hyperlink text. Right. But you remember that it was a beautiful moment. It was just a few years ago that it was like this. Yeah. Now, now it's put in the text. And it brings up the preview. Um, and then you clear it out and you type the thing you want to put in. And then you hit post. And then it brings up this other thing that says, like, do you want to create a group watching experience? <laughs> and it's like, and my options are either sure, get started, or not now. There is no please stop showing me this. <laughs> so every week, not now. And then it like has another thing that it wants me to do. I just <sighs> my favorite thing Ow. is when they start bribing you, like, "Hey, we'll we'll give you two dollars to create an ad." <laughs> <laughs> like, I have I have ad blocking software plugins up the wazoo on Facebook. Yeah, I'm gonna create an ad for you. <laughs> um. Anyway, we're we're, we're glad you're you're tuning in. Uh, this week is just going to be a riff sesh between uh, Father Chuck and I. It's been probably, what, almost two years since we've done one of these. I think so. I think you're right. I feel like we did one when it when Corona dropped. Yeah. I'm pretty sure there's when an episode it, where, where we're just like, they call it COVID now? Yeah, when Corona, when Corona dropped its debut. Yeah, because I was drinking a Corona when we... <laughs> yeah. That's right. When it dropped its debut before uh, before it it really you know before it started to kind of like before it really hit its stride with that experimental the experimental album known as Delta. Yeah, they're never the same after that. <laughs> get on By the way, way, I love that. I love how we've given up on all this variant tracking. Like it doesn't make any sense, right? Because at first, right, we were calling them by like. Right, we were calling them by the cities where they first appeared. Right, there was like the there was like the Wuhan variant, and then there was the, the and then Africa. there was like then there was like the India variant and the Brazil variant or whatever. And then they're like, oh, well, I guess that's 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 not you know we can't we can't do that. So we're gonna use we're gonna use Greek numbering 
right. to set this up. So this is the alpha variant. Then we got Delta. And now there's like a new variant out there, but they're calling it Delta Plus. <laughs> I did hear about Delta Plus. And it's like, yeah. wait, hold on now. Like, did, did it launch a streaming service? <laughs> is it, why are we, why, why isn't it, why isn't it Gamma? Or I guess it already is Gamma. I don't, it's just so funny to me. Like, like oh, there's Delta Plus, right? It, it, I don't know. It kind of makes me think of like, the battery numbering conventions. It's like we have the A battery, the B battery, the C battery. Oh, well, well, well we need double A. Yeah. Well, well now we need triple A. <laughs> well, that's that's like what, uh, that's what, hur- let's do with hurricanes, right? Once they reach the end of the alphabet, they start going to the Greek alphabet. Yeah. I mean, that Hurricane makes sense. Alpha. Hurricane beta. It's just just funny to me. I mean, just like, uh, and, it, and of course, if you're cynical like me, you're like, oh, of course there's a Delta Plus, right? There's always got to be something new out there because they got to sell the papers and keep people scared. Um, um, well, they're, they're launching a new one. It's just uh, Batwing. <laughs> you know, like Lake Peacock. I don't know. Oh, joke. I've got, I've got, I've got, I've got all kinds of crap that I could just bring up for the heck of it. Okay. Well, I, I do want to address one thing. I kind of want to update the whole Ooh. Yahtzee thing. Yeah, Yahtzee. Uh, <laughs> Um, you may have noticed that a strike was averted. However, two days later, a crew member was uh, killed on the set of Rust. Director of photography Helena Hutchins was killed on set uh, by Alec Baldwin for a, a, uh, a prop gun that may or may not have been loaded with real bullets. I don't know. This investigation is ongoing. I thought I saw something saying that, that, that it, it had a lead bullet in it. Probably. There's a report going around saying that some members of the crew were playing target practice with the gun the day before. Yeah. Uh, shooting at beer cans and beer bottles. Um, which is not encouraged uh, at all. Um, no. But, no, it's just such a tragic twist of irony that a strike was averted because Yahtzee was okay with the deal, even though Yahtzee members hated it. If you look anywhere, um, nobody likes the deal. Um, and then on the, at the 11th hour, a strike was averted. Then like just a few days later, this happens. And, you know, there's reports of, uh, the crew actually walked off the set the morning that, uh, that the incident, that the accident occurred, uh, due to, um, them feeling like it wasn't very, it wasn't a very safe set. And they were also doing other things like not, uh, paying for hotel rooms. So crew members had to drive 50 miles to, to, to work on set every day. Um, so, I mean, what do you think, Chuck? I mean, it, it, this is so, like, what's the opposite of serendipitous? Like, what, what, what is, like, the, the evil version? Like, well, dark irony? Yeah, something like that. Uh, I, uh, well, it's, it, yeah, in all of this, I, um, I was watching... Um, we've been, Ken and I have been kind of every now and then we just, cause she has to work sometimes at night. So we'll put on something that, you know, about it just sort of background noise for her, you know, mm-hmm. something that I want to watch. And, um, so I put we've been watching the, um, movies that made us documentaries on Netflix. Yeah. And, uh, she was working, so she didn't really care about watching the aliens one. I love aliens. So I, I, I wanted to watch it. And so it's kind of, it was kind of interesting to watch a documentary about a James Cameron production Yeah. while this is all in the back of my mind, because if listener, you don't know anything about James Cameron, he's a madman. Yeah. And he's like a tyrant, uh, especially. <laughs> yeah. And and especially at this stage of his career, um, but they opened up talking about how he was schooled by Roger Corman and how like Roger Corman, they have him in the documentary. Roger Corman is sort of like cracking up over, the insane, insane and like unsafe stuff that they did mm-hmm. to make movies. Yeah. Um, I mean, on one hand, you get the sense that the people involved in Roger Corman productions kind of knew what they were getting themselves into and sort of like signed up for the craziness. But when you read about like James Cameron going to Pinewood Studios and like flipping his lid over the mandated, the mandated, uh, tea breaks. Right. In an English production. And just, it's, 
But to, to James Cameron's credit, he uh, he did apologize to the crew for his behavior. And... Oh, he had to. Like they were going to mutiny. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like um, it was the, the it was breaking down the set. Like the, yeah, there was yeah. a breakdown in in, in rank. <laughs> like yeah. I mean, and, the, and these I, uh... are these are not you know greenhorns. These guys working on the uh, on Pinewood Studios. They'd probably been there for decades. Oh yeah, leading yeah. up to that. You I mean, because they they. Now, if you've seen this, it, it, it's a it's a it's an interesting uh, documentary because they get a lot of people, you know, like I mean, Paul Reiser's in it, Sigourney Weaver's in it, and they're all talking about it. And uh, I watched it with uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, and that was pretty cool. Even though I already yeah, I haven't seen that most of it, but but like right. I, I know the Aliens was like notorious for for like the crew almost like basically turned on James Cameron. Yeah, well, that kind of seems to happen in a lot of James Cameron productions, yes. right? Like, uh, yes. it, it, you know, no, 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 no. The 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 production that that is the just like of of james cameron's like uh craziness is the abyss oh that's right yeah (laughs) (laughs) we're like everyone almost drowns yeah yeah um including he himself right really i didn't Um, know that but i'm not surprised they found the whole thing underwater because that's a genius idea yeah go for it well, his I will say to, to to I mean I'll give Cameron this and in stuff I've read about the Abyss production is he said that he was not willing to subject the cast and crew to stuff that he himself was not willing to do more of. Yeah. So like not that that justifies it, but at least he's not like well I'm sitting up my ivory tower, you know, because he was in filming right. He was in a scuba suit for most of the production underwater himself. Right. And was like you know having to go through like. Like, you know, intense de- uh, decompression and stuff every day. Um, but yeah, there's a couple stories where he almost like there's like two occasions where he almost drowned. Wow. Um, while making the movie and like someone gave him. Someone gave him a regulator that was filled with like an unpurged regulator in like an empty or whatever. And he ended up punching the dude in the face God. like while underwater to try to get him out of the way because you kept shoving it in his face and he's just trying to get to the surface. Wow. Um, but yeah, anyway, just so watching, watching the aliens thing in the background of all this and sort of being like, yeah, this is kind of messed up. Right. I mean, it's on one hand, you're like, oh, look at all these guys, these people, they came together to make this amazing movie and they, they don't, but like these documentaries and they talk about that, they're, they're highlighting like Stan Winston studios guys who they really want to make a functioning queen alien. And so like they're creatives and this like, that's how their brain is working. And they just want to do this. Like they, not only do they feel the pressures, but they want to, this is what they live for. They're engineers. They want to build. So they're like kind of willingly giving up their time and everything to do this. Um, you know, you're not, they're not interviewing the key Dolly grip. Right. Yeah. You know, they're not, they're not interviewing, you know, pink shorts guy, uh, <laughs> you know, they're, who died recently? You know, we, we I forgot to mention. Right. I sent you an article about him. His yeah. name was uh, hold on Ken Nighting Nightingale. I think it's Nightingale. Yeah. Nightingale. N i g h t i n g a l l. I don't think it's Nightingale, yeah. but it's Nightingale. British guy. And it's funny because yeah. I said like, hey, do you think the pink shorts guy got to go to Hawaii after after <laughs> Star Wars? No, he had to go to his next gig. Well, apparently. Um, he got to eat at uh, Buckingham Pal- like a lunch at Buckingham Palace with the rest of the Star Wars crew after it had found so much success. That's so, kind of cool. You got to do that, and he had yeah, a long, cre- long storied career after that. He was he's, he's he was the real deal, and he died just yeah. uh, just a year ago. So rest in peace to the pink, pink shorts boom mic guy. Yeah, but anyway, so I think, and 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 the deal too is. Okay, so like, aliens, aliens, big studio production, right. um, a movie like Rust, yeah, what we're talking about here, is not a big studio production. No, and and as you, someone in the film industry, would know, these are the kind of productions that if you're trying to get a break into the industry, these are the kinds of productions you kind of have to do. Yes, mm-hmm. and and so and, and so in that regard, it becomes exploitative. Absolutely, yeah. Because it's like, you know, like, like I've talked a little bit about my wife and her work with a, with one of the big four financial firms and how they, I felt that some of the work, that some of what they did to her was exploitative at times of, of people of her caliber. And she would always say, well, but the, but the partners, they're doing more. And I'm like, well, I don't know that that excuses it. 
but that's sort of but there is that mentality of like you kind of know what you're getting yourself into in these if you're going to work for some of these things and so if you choose to get into it that way right like at this point like if somebody were to like you know if somebody wants to work for apple we know what apple is about yeah and that the work and the work expectations are intense and so you're you know there's, there's a bit of a different experience of saying like i'm choosing to get into this it's a different thing where your hope is to get to like a marvel production or something that is a little bit more controlled and has and has the budget to offer you know better parameters and safety and you know higher caliber of whatever versus this indie film but you you know so like basically it's like well yeah you're desperate to get a job you're desperate to get so we'll take advantage of that you know again that's why i say it's exploitative we'll take advantage of your of your of your hunger to get into the industry and you know, and like when you say things like, well, wait, hold on, like I have to drive 50 miles, like that's that's money out of my pocket. Like, well, that's just the film industry, kid. Deal with it. Yeah. Um, that, and I, I, I've had to I worked on I worked on two shoots, one in Las Vegas, one in L.A., where I was a production assistant, um, but also sort of a glorified camera assistant on both as well, or glorified to uh, camera assistant on both. And I was not paid for either of them. Uh, both of them were week long shoots. The first one was out in the middle of nowhere, out in the middle of nowhere, uh, like in a cowboy town, I forgot the name of it. It was actually a pretty cool town. Um, and we just worked around the clock for an entire week, like just nonstop. Um, uh, and it was a student shoot, so technically not, I guess it wasn't a union shoot, um, but they fed me. <laughs> they put me up every single night. I had a place to go to sleep every night. They paid for all my gas. Um, and to be honest, like I actually loved working on that shoot and like I, I, and it was my very first one, um, was, and it's like, it's kind of hard to be like, they exploited you. I'm like, yeah, they did. But I had so much fun. <laughs> I had a lot of fun working on that shoot. I made, I made really cool connections and really cool friends. We, we all had a blast when it was done. We all went to Las Vegas and just partied so hard, dude. Um, but yeah, and the other shoot, another student shoot for USC, was for a zombie musical. Um, not nearly as fun. That one, I was actually a camera assistant. I was a second AC, which is the person who, who holds the slate, the clapper, as some people, as, as, you, as you lay people refer to it. <laughs> um, I'm sure your grandma has one with like a, it's like a picture frame. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, that, that was my, my duty. And again, not paid a dime um, and also not fed. Um, and on top of that, I had to pay for my own parking, um, which that seems like so petty, right? Oh, you gotta, I shouldn't have to pay to work, <laughs> okay? Um, and when I told them, I was like, hey, it costs like 10 bucks to park here every day. I have to pay $10 to be here. And the first assistant director was just like, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's just... This is how it is. That's, I mean, that's the whole culture of, of filmmaking, especially below the line. You're paying your dues. Well, and, and what I don't understand is it's creative work. Yeah. And, and so why is it that you don't get, like, residual? Um, you know, like, I feel like, I feel like, there has to be some degree of residual money for folks who participate in these, even if it's just like for actions, right? Like if, again, Probably. if you're just getting checks for like 50 bucks every I mean, couple years. And, like, and, I, and, it, and in my opinion, I don't think residual residuals are, are great. I would much rather just be given like a, a living wage because residuals no, all no, no. depend like on the, the performance of the art and stuff. And yeah. I'm, I'm the case I'm making is I think there should be re- residuals in addition to, I see. Yeah. Getting paid. That would be nice. Because yeah, because if you're if you're if your holding of a something is making this movie happen, then mm-hmm. every time someone watches that movie, they're watching the fruit of your work. Yeah. So like, you know, is that worth is that worth a, a dollar or two of, of what the, of the billions that this movie has made. Yeah, sure. Right. <laughs> I mean, and, and the majority of those residuals go for, to go to uh, above. I think that's mostly just reserve for like above the line crew. You know, you get the, the points system. 
Yeah, which is why Alec Baldwin was the producer, by the way, on Rust. Um, People, and this is the thing about Alec Baldwin. I just want, I just want to point out, just because he was producer doesn't mean he hired like the crappy first AD, who apparently has like a a notorious track record of like ignoring like safety measures. That's that's been made public recently, apparently. Mm Or the armorer, who was also responsible for the weapons, and who who might have been target practicing with them the day before. Um, was there an arm? I thought there wasn't an armorer. There was an armorer. She's actually um, oh, okay. she's actually the, the daughter of a very famous armorer. Uh, hmm. In fact, that's how she got the job apparently. And this huh. is only yeah, her, her second uh, her second job. Um, so, but he, but but the point I'm trying to make, Alec Baldwin, because he's a producer, he gets producer credit. Doesn't mean he's in charge of hiring anybody. Um, they right. usually just do that for for like the points, so they can so they can get the residual money off of it because he's not making that much. He's not going to get paid that much up front because it's an independent film, right? Right. Um, or it or or, it's a, or it could be a situation. I don't know if it's like this for Alec Baldwin, but I know that like Will Smith often gets producer credit yeah. in movies he stars in because that's part of his contract because he wants to have some say in how his image looks on screen. Right. Yeah. There's there's I mean The, the Rock does this too. The Rock does a lot of oh yeah. Jerry O'Connell, <laughs> some hey hey hey, perfect time for some Sliders trivia. Um, all right, all right. The reason why Jerry O'Connell left Sliders uh, at the end of season four was because uh, this, the the network refused to give him a, an executive producer credit, and he felt that he deserved the executive producer credit because a he's he plays the protagonist of the film. Uh, his name was growing at the time. He's been in like big movies. He was in Scream Two, and Jerry Maguire. Uh, and also, he brought his brother on board, Charlie O'Connell, to be a co-star. So he felt that he deserved the executive producer credit. Uh, and they're like, uh, in your dreams, Jerry, uh, this is Sliders, not X-Files. Uh, <laughs> and so he and his brother walked. Yeah, so. and, and the thing is funny is, for folks who don't know, executive producer is largely an honorarium. Like, well, it's, and, it's more of an honorarium producer credit. In film, yes. TV, no. Yeah. TV, oh, it's, more, okay. it's more functional in TV. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because I, I know that that was sort of the, I know that in a, it's sort of one of the famous, one of the, or one of the, not famous, one of the more better known sort of like middle fingers in Hollywood was when they stuck, um, was when they stuck a John Peters as like executive <laughs> producer on like later Batman films. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking about this this morning. I was reading a thing about um, Last Night in Soho. Oh, yeah. Oh, um, so which I've not yet seen. Um, comes out this Friday and, uh, tomorrow. But I am, uh, but as you know, I, I, you know, I do have, and as my wife also knows, I have, I have very strong feelings about Anya Taylor Joy. Right. Um, and but as I was reading some stuff about the movie, and I like Edgar Wright. I, you know, as 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 listeners, this podcast probably know because we are those kinds of people. Edgar has um, us, us, and and. Um, Anyway, so I was reading about it and they were talking about, you know, and and a few things I've read over the past several months about that, you know, here and there about this movie is that is people talking about how it how it's, you know, the the, it's like an anti nostalgia. It's looking back at a historic period and trying to sort of talk about the truth or the darkness that's in it rather than the way nostalgia causes us to look back at certain times with rose colored glasses. And I find it interesting. They're talking about this now because I think, I think once upon a time in Hollywood kind of did this for the 1960s, the way that last night in Soho is doing for sixties, London, what, um, you know, that once upon a time in Hollywood kind of did this for late sixties, LA Hmm. showing that like in particular, hippies aren't this romanticized ideal that we've tried to make them into. Um, and what got me thinking about what I was thinking about, what I thought would be kind of fun just to riff on for us is, is this like our generation's way of kind of like hitting back at the boomers? Because it's like, the boomers were the ones who idolized the 60s and made all these movies that idolized the 60s. And there's been like a gradual growing resentment toward it yeah. in recent years. And now we've got two fairly high profile directors making movies for both Gen X. that are taking up. Yeah, both Gen X that are taking apart yeah. the 
the, 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 the rosy feelings we have about the sixties. Like, you think there's something to that? I think there is totally. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's no, if you're a big fan of Tarantino, um, you, you've known, he said many times that like the sixties was like a crappy decade for movies. Um, mainly because they had a hard time keeping up with the counterculture. They didn't know how to market to the counterculture. I don't know. I think, I think we're due for like an anti Forrest Gump. Maybe. Yeah. Even though I think yeah. Forrest Gump in its way is, is kind of, I think you could look at Forrest Gump as like a kind of a critique. Don't you? Like, I mean, I don't know. I guess. I mean, I the, the guy is literally just drifting through life, right? Like, yeah, but like, I guess one one could make the argument. I mean, I guess if you look at it from a certain way, you can make the argument that like, what a testament to white privilege this movie is. That even like a really stupid white guy can find himself like in the halls of power accidentally. Yeah, but I mean, just to kind of get to the meat of your question about like, you know, are we going to start actually critiquing that st- like serious critiques and satirizing? I think it's. I mean, I think we're past due, right? Well, and that's I, and what I want to say is that, it's that it, it feels very refreshing because <laughs> yeah. here's the thing. And I think it's because I, do you think we're sort of approaching our time now as, as, ter- as terms of like counterculture and maybe not counterculture, but like, you know, we're older millennials now. We're all pushing 40 and we've got all these strikes going on, you know. I mean, my thing, what I think is going on is I think that. Well, so honestly, just for me, you know, I grew up, I grew up, you know, was the only child of a single mom who, you know, she, she got hit with the boomer nostalgia bug, just like everybody else. And, you know, I spent a lot of my childhood in, in that, like, just sort of with that around me, you know what I mean? Not just, not just for her, but like, you know, she, you know, the way that the nostalgia bug hit her was Barbie collecting. Yeah. And so I spent a lot of time going to like collectible shows and flea markets and things like that for her to seek out stuff for her collection. And as a result of that, I was exposed to just a lot of the ephemera of stuff from the 60s, you know, that people were selling alongside of that and, you know, interacting with people from that generation. So, you know, and then on top of that, oldie stations are playing all this music from the 60s. And, you know, my mom, you know, that, that's the music she grew up with. And so we listened to a lot of that. And given the fact that I grew up in a, you know, fairly, you know, very conservative Christian environment that didn't want people, didn't want us listening to non-Christian music. Um, and I think my mom recognized that a lot of Christian music was kind of garbage. So to her, it was like, well, this is music I grew up with, it's safe. So we'll just listen to this all the time, right? So I say that because I grew up with this very strong sense of sort of idealizing that era. And, you know, I mean, I, there was a time in college, you know, where I was sort of branded as hippie Chuck at times. And, you know, I mean, you know, you know me, yeah, right? Even though, even though I kind of like the 70s more. But I, um, but like 60s surfing was like a big thing for me, the, the, that transition era from short board, from long boards to short boards and just all that hippie, you know, stuff. You know, I love the Beatles. I used to idolize John Lennon, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I just grew up with all that. I thought Forrest Gump was such a great movie and I thought it showed like what a crazy time the sixties were, this great trans, you know, this transformation that happened, you know, and you read about like the, you know, the, the, uh, the democratic national convention in Detroit of 1968 and how like this, it changed everything and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. It's the sixties, man. It's the sixties, man. (laughs) And then you start seeing how every countercultural, or every every attempt at like protest, every attempt at anything, it starts getting sort of like co-opted as, oh, it's just like the 60s. You know, it's like, oh, it's just like the 60s. And it's like, because the people who are in charge, that's what they know. And so they're trying to like make it look like what they want. And then they keep trying to have revolutions. They keep trying to continue it. And they could fail to accept the fact that they became the man. Yeah. And I, I don't think people, people, people really underestimate the pushback that happened after that. Like evangelicalism yeah. came out of the pushback against counterculture and so, it became but, a stronger so force. Did. Right. And, you know, but you know, what else came out as a, as a result of the pushback against the counterculture what? was like Black Sabbath and <laughs> and Alice Cooper. I mean, Alice Cooper, I've I've heard him in like a, some documentary about rock music basically said that, like, he's like the music we, we made the music we made because the hippies failed. 
Is that he's like he's like, you know, he's like all these guys came back from Nam and it was just like this was this is a nightmare. Wait, 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 wait. So are you saying, Chuck, that Black Sabbath and Alice Cooper are the dialectic of the synthesis of the counterculture, the antithesis of the pushback from evangelicals and 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 status quo, creating yes the synthesized Black Sabbath, right? Is that what we're saying? Is that... I, I, I'm sure. still trying to understand dialectics. Okay. <laughs> um, but I'm no, not going mean, to. I'm not going to try to explain it on this podcast. <laughs> Look it up. Yeah, but I think that. But no, but I think that. I think that they're both right. Neo 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 conservatism. Yeah. Is a backlash. Right. To the counterculture, and I also, but also like you know the other side of that right is the is the like is anarchy right the other side of it is the punk is punk rock mm-hmm. um and which which has its roots in metal um i but anyway so which of course all which of course stems itself out of blues and there's a whole thing we can do with that but um but i think that anyway just i i find it so refreshing that we're finally giving a little takedown to the 60s because I get, you know, and I didn't realize how annoying it was until I went to seminary, and all these clergy, and I, I'm I'm trying I'm trying to be very careful, <laughs> but basically like the, the 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 current and more so the outgoing power structure of the Episcopal Church and other mainline Christian denominations are people who decided to get ordained in the midst of the counterculture because they're like, we're going to fix the church because we're going to bring the revolution to the church. Mm-hmm. And like, we got some cool stuff out of it, right? The result of it is that, you know, we have women's ordination. We have, um, you know, we have, you know, gay ordination. We, you know, same-sex marriage is a sacrament of the church and all this. And like, it, you know, a lot of that came out of it. But the other pro- But the other side of it is that we got like an intense capitulation to secularism and liberalism and we got the way that the way that evangelicalism became the republican party at prayer mainline christianity became the democratic party at prayer and it it you know it, it's it's sort of the same it's it becomes the same problem that we see on the other side and that it's reactionary to a political system rather than faithfulness to the gospel of Jesus in a lot of ways. I, I don't, I, you know, there, there obviously, um, there's obviously exceptions to all of this, but like when I was in seminary, I had to hear so much about how like the sixties transformed everything and how the sixties opened us up to, because the second Vatican council happened in 1962. And so the liturgical transformation and renewals of the churches and some theological stuff began with the Vatican doing it in 62. So the sixties was just this whole time. And so it's just constant, like, you know, lionizing worshiping of the sixties. And it was just like, Oh my gosh, but no one goes into how it got flattened. Yeah. 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 And how, and how we missed things. Cause what's fascinating is like the millennial clergy are all like, why do we have to sacrifice clear doctrines about Jesus in order to get gay marriage. Like, and these are like gay millennial priests that I've talked to that are like, I want, you know, I'm a gay person who knows they're loved and they're loved by God and wants to serve the church. And I prefer worshiping using Elizabethan English and old chants and Mm -hmm. incense and all of that. I don't want, I don't want praise bands. I don't want, (laughs) fog machines right i want a very ancient christianity yeah um and you know it's like why do we have to give that up in order to get this right that the, the, the case they make is that people in the 60s thought we had to get rid of what was ancient in order to get the youths right it's always going to be trying to get the youths yeah. um as, as an aside um I can't remember what liturgical theologian it was. I don't know if it was Don Gregory, Gregory Dix or who it was, but he, uh, he, he uh, this, this liturgical scholar said, we're trying to make the liturgy in contemporary language. And he was saying this in the 60s. 
he said we're trying to make the liturgy in the in 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 contemporary language in order to draw in order to draw the youth of america when the youth of america are burning sage and saying prayers in sanskrit (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) i think it's fascinating um but anyway that's a that's a whole diversion for just to say that like for me the moment when i felt catharsis about this is and i've talked about this several times in this podcast is the moment in walk hard the dewey cox story when they just give this bald face they just say plainly what every 60s counterculture montage in like a biopic is trying to say where they're like this is the most important time in human history isn't it great that we are alive in the 1960s oh it's the 1960s yes you can go drop acid with the beatles it's just it's so it's so good to have seen that someone just say it like it's this is self-importance at its worst right totally um and that you know in all of this talk around how progressive and transformative that time it was. It's like, yeah, and they firebombed, they firebombed uh, a black activist group's headquarters in Philadelphia. Right. You know, um, yeah, it was so, yeah, the hippies were so great. They slaughtered a bunch of people in the Hollywood Hills. (laughs) You know? Steve Jobs is a great example too, right? If you read Steve Jobs' biography, right, he's this like, I mean, literal filthy hippie. Right. I mean, Atari, like guys at Atari were trying to get rid of him because they said he stank. Um, you know, he shows up not wearing shoes. He'd spend time in India. I mean, just all the typical hippie stuff. <laughs> and then he winds up being the CEO of like the wealthiest company in the world. Right. And like, we don't stop to think, I, I, I think, I feel like, I feel like the boomer generation doesn't, do enough self-reflection on that fact. Like they, like they want to continue to see themselves as countercultures and failing to see that they became the man that like whole foods, whole foods was conceived of in the days of like organic hippie gardening, right? Whole foods was like a hippie grocery store. And now we associate it with upper class white people and it's owned by now the largest company in the world yeah you know and there's never there's never been any talk about like selling out i think that's what the 90s i think maybe that's why like i appreciate it is because you and i as as i know we are technically old millennials geriatric millennials are the stupid term they use is but i'll claim my gen x title when i can even though i'm on the tail end of gen x and i feel like i feel like gen xers like we are of the generation that we looked at this kind of stuff and we're like, you sold out, right? Yeah. Like the highest virtue of our generation is not selling out. Right. And but I, somewhere I, along the way we lost that. Yeah. I, I think it also has to do with the fact that like it became more of a fashion statement to not sell out rather than something about like trying to make society better. Like it became like, don't sell out because it, it's just it's not cool to sell out. You have to be you have to be cool. Yeah. Like, don't you want to be cool? You know what I mean? And like, yeah. I always that's why I I always go back to my bullies in middle school. They weren't the jocks. Like they were they were they they looked like Kurt Cobain. <laughs> yeah. They looked and dressed just like him. You know. So. Yeah. Well, and that's the. <laughs> And that's the thing too, right? Is that every it, it, the problem isn't a particular cultural group; yeah. it's a mindset that will gravitate to whatever's popular at the time. Right. That's why, like, I'm kind of thinking that we're we're on the verge of like that the true like countercultural kids in schools nowadays are the jocks <laughs> because the nerds took over. Maybe. Like, I mean, I would I would say the, I mean. I would say it would be like the, uh, you know, like genderqueer kids probably who are the most counterculture. I, I don't think so. No? No. Because because that's accepted now, right? Like that doesn't, it doesn't, well, it, it pisses off their parents, but it doesn't piss off their peers nearly as much. Like there's always going to be some subset that is. But the fact that like you can like show up and declare different pronouns and like 
don't get expelled is a very different game than than like because like now like you can like i mean i I, i'm gonna try to be very careful as i say this but like you could effectively do that now just to get attention you know what i mean i guess it's not it's not you know the i mean i'm not trying to say that like i actually believe that the jocks are actually counterculture but i'm just trying to say that consider what would happen like i have anxiety around one of my kids telling me they want to play football (laughs) and i have to stop and think about is that the same emotion that like my mom had if like I came home with like my fingernails painted black and I wanted to, <laughs> and like I wanted to be a, like a, an artist that special that like where my medium is raw meat yeah, or something. You know what I mean? Like I, I so I, I just, I, I often wonder about that. And I often wonder about, you know, like is being cons- like, are there people who identify as conservative politically, not because they're actually conservative, but because they see it as countercultural? Uh, I think so. I think I think a lot of Trump supporters thought that they were being very punk rock, you, like yeah. even though they completely misunderstand what that actually means. Um, like I'll I'll never accept like Trumpism as like counterculture or like punk rock. It's 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 not. Um, but like. I don't know. I, I think our counterculture today is like a mixture of things, um, of things that like you probably can't help. Like it probably has a lot to do with race, ethnicity, identity, and also like on the political spectrum. Like, like you know, we we talked about capitalism mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago. And one thing I, I wanted to really point out, we were talking about how to clearly define things, like what is a capitalist, what is a socialist? And the thing that I, I kind of just sort of brought up for a second was that there is no leftist representation in our government, aside from maybe Bernie Sanders, maybe AOC and the squad. But even then, when they, when they, when they you know, are elected, they kind of move a little bit closer to the center and that's because they're they're not working on these they're not working on leftist platforms, you know. So, right. I mean, I think the counterculture today is just like a it's a mixture of things, um, of like who is um, marginalized, but also who takes up the mantle of a type of politics that would probably be seen as like on the fringe, but um, can also unite people. And uh, basically what I'm trying to say, Chuck, is that leftist podcasters are the counterculture. That's, that's who. <laughs> leftist podcasters with beards. Yeah, I, I actually don't, I really don't know that I agree. Yeah. I don't know that I, I don't know that what I think constitutes an actual counterculture, but I think that Maybe there is no, maybe there actually is no counterculture. Maybe you don't know what it is until it's done, you know? <laughs> maybe. But like, but maybe there is no counterculture because there really isn't a dominant culture anymore. That's probably true too. I mean, our culture is kind of like, what is our culture today? I don't know what it is. I don't, it's meta apparently, right? Yeah. Well, that's like, that's like, I'm, I really want to watch the, I really want to watch um, Rebecca Hall's movie Passing um, that she just made with Tessa Thompson and... The other, but it, it it's an adaptation of a Harlem Renaissance novel from 1929 that deals with light-skinned black women passing as white huh. in a society when that wasn't like you know like that's how they had to you know they, they that's what they did, um, and 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 sort of the psychology that comes with that, um, part and Rebecca Hall in an interview I read with her actually just today was saying that part of the reason she made it is her own heritage of that because her mother her mother is like i think is half black and so she's grown up with this whole thing of like oh your mother is so exotic you know being in like british boarding schools and you know or british schools and stuff but um and just talk about even like within a family like hers like you know she's seen kind of what it's like and she identified with the novel when she first read it she said but she also mentioned that when we get she said something in the interview that said when we get when we get like really down into it we find out that none of us are actually comfortable with who we are and we're all doing our own form of passing hmm. to like 
to like whatever. And I think she's right in that because I'm starting to, and I've told you this before, but I'm like, I think at some point we're going to have to acknowledge that there is no such distinction as things like queer and straight, because I don't know that there's such a thing as straight. <laughs> um, and, and, and I think we're on the cusp of that. And I think we're going to, there's as a society, we're going to have to kind of come to terms with that reality hmm. and what that means. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why we're seeing such a concentrated issue with stuff related to like trans rights or whatever, because we're, I think we are on the cusp of like, as a society kind of realize it, like we're making a shift to where like this is normal now. Yeah. And we don't know how to, we don't yet know how to deal with that fact. Cause like, I remember reading a, a criticism of modern family, um, criticizing, um, Cam and Mitch's characters as being a boring couple. But then they said, well, I bet I guess that that's its own form of progress. And I'm like, well, it kind of is. Yeah. Like, <laughs> isn't that kind of what we want? Right. It's that it's that it's that, you know, that whole thing is like, I'm we're here, we're queer, get used to it. Right. Like, isn't that the isn't that ultimately the rallying cry? Is it like you're not yeah. odd? You're just you. <laughs> and that's fine. Right, right. <laughs> um. And, and so I think that's why I think there's I think we're on the cusp of this realization. And I think if we all get real honest with ourselves in terms of things like these kinds of like there is like there is no there is no normal. There is no straight. There is no right. Like none of us actually is any of that. And if there it's is a, a standards, it was a standard created by capitalism. So, yeah, exactly. I think once you start dismantling capitalism, that's where you find out that there is no normal. Yeah, right. And like, I'm like, and for me, like, I'm, I'm like, I'm kind of excited about that prospect. Yeah. You know, like I think about, I think about like what it says in the new Testament where Paul talks about how in Christ there is no male or female, there is no Easter, you know, there is no slave or free, there is no Jew or Gentile, right? Like that, that we get past, we get past these, these distinctions mm -hmm. that, you know, and the way Paul is talking about them, he's talking about them more in sort of like their cultural and economic ramifications. Right. Like, obviously, there are still Jews and obviously there are still Greeks. Right. Like people of, you know, because there's there's still Goldsteins. There's still whatever. Right. Like that just doesn't disappear. But what he's talking about is like the idea of like a chosen people versus everybody else. The idea of people who have rights, people who don't are like people who have political capital, people who don't. Right. It's, you know, those those things kind of disappear. And and so, like, it, in a way, it, right, that's liberating. But liberation is hard. Because when you define yourself entirely by a struggle toward liberation, once you find some degree of freedom, when the battle is over, then you're like, well, what do I do now? And like, I'm not saying like, you know, we're, we're going to hit this moment of like racial harmony and harmony of human speech. But I'm just saying, like, I think that when we're on the cusp of a change of big magnitude, like we have a hard time with it. Like, um, this is a weird illustration, but... I read a thing a couple of weeks ago about the Taliban yeah, and how like the Taliban is bored <laughs> um, because these freedom fighters are now, you know, they're political officials. Yeah. And they're like, you know, they've been spending the past decade trying to fight a holy war. Right. And now that the holy war is over, they have to do bureaucracy. And now they're like, oh, crap. <laughs> you know, and I think this is kind of like what happened with Trump is I think Trump, and I, th I think I said this in the podcast before, is I think Trump really sold this idea of like, of like, of a uh, disruption. We're going to disrupt the political system. We're going to drain the swamp. We're going to fix it all. We're going to do blah, 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 blah. And then you get in office and you find out that it's really easy. Like it find out that like the work is super boring and it's actually just a bunch of board meetings. And that the big crisis he has to fight against is a virus and not like a terrorist trying to take over the country or something, right? Yeah, that, there's that. But I think, but ultimately, like, the work of government is super boring, yeah. right? There's a reason why people talk about C-SPAN being, like, the boringest, most boring channel on television, because the work of government is boring. It's board meeting after board meeting after board meeting. Like, yeah. it's committee meetings. That's all government is. That's not exciting. Like, that doesn't, 
that doesn't fit with the image of like a dude with an eagle on his back riding on a tank firing guns, right? It's this, and so I think so I think that's why Trump continued to just, you know, one he didn't want to be in the White House anymore. He wanted to do rallies because rallies allow for the fiction of like a struggle, right? He doesn't want. He didn't want to be seen as oh crap, like it's a board meeting. And it's funny because I, it created that there there's there was that that was the culture behind Trumpism is how like entertaining politics should be right like it became so yeah. much theater right um, WWE and what's funny is that like the the reaction it had and 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 me personally is I am now excited by the boring stuff like I've been trying to read more theory and history stuff that I've always found to be boring and mm-hmm. it is boring but like I I love that I'm bored like I I, I want to feel bored again because the right. other one felt so toxic and horrible. And like that's yeah. why like that's why I gave when we talk about capitalism, I gave my super dry definition of it. Because I've been listening to this podcast, it's like a very dry theory on capitalism and stuff. And like I want I'm like craving it. Like give me give me the boring crap, please. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and because that's what it is. Yeah. It is what it is. It, you know, it's not it's not this we got to hype it up so I look cool or whatever. Right. And again, I think that that's part of the problem with, I think that's been part of the problem with, with, with Trumpism, right? Is that they won and then it was like, oh, this is boring. Right. This actually wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And so Trump felt like we got to create something in order to up the ante rather than just accepting this is boring. It's so this weird. This is normal. It's so this weird. Is, you know. Yeah. And so I think like, and I think all movements of disruption and change eventually have to come to this realization that when you get to where you're trying to go, it's boring (laughs) a lot of the time. And that's okay. All transformative moments, whether they're, you know, bad or good, whatever they all, if if they win, they have to deal with the fact that they stop, the struggle ends and it just becomes. Yeah. And it's benign. It's almost like that's what our whole culture is starting is trying to fight against. Like we're trying to right. make everything more sensational than it actually right. is because of in all facets of life. Right. Because because boring doesn't sell. Yeah. It brings you back. You keep coming back if it's sensational, you know. Yeah, exactly. Um, what was it? I watched a. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld's 23, 23 hours to kill special on Netflix last night. And, uh, it's from 2020 and he talks about going to a restaurant and it's like, can we show you the specials? And he's like, eh, no, he's like, if it's a special, why isn't it on the menu? And, uh, he's like, I don't want to, he's like, I don't want to eat the food that's auditioning to be on the menu. Yeah. He's like, everything is like herb crusted, drizzled in reduction. Like, do we have to do this to everything? Can we just, have food and you know and i that, that makes me think of what you're you're talking about here it's yeah we always gotta it's gotta be spectacle it's gotta be well i remember when i was a teenager keelan and i ordered a pizza and friend of the show keelan for those who don't listen regularly um and he uh i remember we got i think i think we got it from like pizza hut or something but he pointed out the side of the box said your pizza experience is about to begin. <laughs> and he's like, pizza experience. Yeah. Oh, hey, did you see the trailer for Lightyear? No, I haven't watched the trailer yet, but. So you didn't understand my message about what I was talking about? That. Well, I looked it up. That's why, I, without context, that's why I asked if you had gotten to some edibles by accident. <laughs> because you're, you're, without context, I just, I'm going to read your, your message to me Okay. without context. And I want our listeners to understand where I was coming from. Okay. Keep in mind, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I have nothing, no, no, no frame of reference. Right. I just wake up to a message from you that says, so is Lightyear the first fake movie? I guess Machete probably counts as one. Perhaps even Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? But those are all still pretty cheeky in their meta-ness. Lightyear seems very genuine. <laughs> I've never seen Machete. I've never seen Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? But I also had no idea that they were... When I saw Lightyear, it's like... Like, is in Buzz Lightyear? Is that what we're talking about here? And it took me, like, I finally got into my office and got some stuff done. And then I looked this up to see if there was a Lightyear. And it, uh, apparently, yes, they are making a movie... Pixar is making a movie that is supposed to be 
the real Buzz Lightyear. Yeah. That yeah. the toy from Toy Story is based on. Yes. Yes. And it's serious. Okay. Like it's it's like a real sci-fi space opera. Uh, Disney animated movie or Pixar, I guess. I mean, I mean, I guess they've they, they've they've tapped the well on what they can do with the Toy Story. I mean, part story. of me it, 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 like loves that idea. Like, I love the idea of turning fake movies into real movies. Like, <laughs> because, like I said, I, I named those two movies. That's basically what they are. Like, Machete is based on the fake trailer Robert Rodriguez made for the movie for the movie Grindhouse. And ah, uh, yeah, okay. And and not many people know this, but Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? The Coen Brothers movie starring George Clooney um, about a couple of guys who escaped from the chain gang. Anyway, great film. One of my favorite Coen Brothers. One of my favorite Coen Brothers movies. That movie uh, was actually inspired by... There's this old movie from the 1950s called um, Sullivan's Travels. And it's about a Hollywood producer who wants to make a movie for like... That's like about the common man. Like nothing... Nothing like super hyper artistic and, and, and weird studio. He wanted to make it like a real story about real people. So he so he he leaves his, you know, lavish Hollywood lifestyle and go he lives as a hobo, essentially. Um, and the movie he's working on that reflects that is called Oh Brother Where Art Thou? And so the idea behind the movie is that like this is supposed to be that movie. Even though it has very little to do with okay. the actual movie itself. The joke. It's like a joke. It's not really. It's just a joke. It's it's in, in, in perfect Coen Brothers fashion. Like they're just kind of. It's a jo- it's a joke for the letterboxed crowd. Exactly. Yes, it is. Um, <laughs> but Lightyear, unlike Machete, which is super tongue in cheek, and Oh Brother Where Art Thou, which is just a joke, Lightyear is like genuine. Like, hey, let's take this little thing. It'd be like if someone. <laughs> If they decided to turn like all the movies on Seinfeld into real movies, like I was, I was about to say, like it would Sack be like Lunch. Larry. Da- it would be like if, if it would be like if Larry David decided to make a prognosis negative movie, <laughs> like an like, actual prognosis negative. Uh, what are the other ones? Sack Lunch, uh, the Death Channel, Channel, yeah, Channel. Death, that death was, Blow. I watched that one last night. Death Blow. <laughs> You're gonna miss the Death Blow. Because <laughs> <laughs> I watched the one last night where. Um, Kramer, uh, Kramer's number is one digit off from movie phone. Oh yeah. <laughs> that's a great episode. And, uh, that's the one where they go see channel. Why don't you just tell me the name of the movie you want to see? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I've told you before, my wife does not like Seinfeld. Okay. So I had it on while she was working, got legit hard laughter out of her every yeah. time Kramer is answering the movie phone phone. <laughs> I was like, you actually laughed at Seinfeld. Nice. That's funny. Um, yeah, <laughs> but I don't know. I, I, I think it's, I think it's just funny because I, I, I think so much about Oh Brother Where Art Thou and how funny it is that it's a kind of like a fake movie, but it's, it's done as a joke. But like right. the fact that Lightyear is like, Hey, let's, let's actually, that's how and we it's can all, this. Now, does that mean we get a, well, and, oh Brother movie? War, and Oh Brother Where Art Thou is also a remake or a, a sort of a retelling of the Odyssey as well. Even though they, 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 they had never read the Odyssey, but yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> they just took like what they knew culturally about it and based okay. it off of that. <laughs> um, nah, I love the Coens, dude. Uh, but uh, no, they should make one about Woody now and call it uh, Snake in My Boots. Snake in My Boot. <laughs> Snakes on a boot. Snakes in a boot. <laughs> um, why why uh, stop there? Yeah. Oh, uh, God. Are we going to get like Slinky Dog? <laughs> um gotta bleed that ip dry yeah dude totally. dude what i i want you know what they should do they should bring back lord and miller yeah and they should let them make a dengar movie or a dengar show for for disney plus i want i do want a full-on star wars comedy live action set in universe that's what solo was supposed to be i guess yeah, but you can't really do it with Han Solo. That was the mistake they made. You can't really do it with Han Solo. You got to do it with like you got to do it with like. Give me the adventures of Dengar and IG eighty eight. Taika Waititi can voice IG eighty eight. Um, I, I I I learned something interesting about Dengar. I was always led to believe that he got into a swoop bike ask accident, and he had to walk around looking like a mummy his entire life because of that. 
But according to George Lucas, oh, no. it's actually like a turban. Like, it's supposed to be like a turban, like a cultural. Okay. Thing. All right. Hey, speaking of uh, George Lucas, yeah. um, it, it was fun watching. I watched Dune with my wife the other day. I saw it in theaters. And I also watched it on HBO Max. And it was fun watching it with her because she has never read the books. So yeah. I wanted it was good to have a complete Dune novice sitting next to me. And uh, and she was just like, basically like, oh, I can see where Tatooine comes from. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> like, oh, no like, joke. Don't I like, know it? Oh, yeah. The, the Tusken Raiders are the Fremen. Yeah. So <laughs> that's kind of funny. It's just so funny. To, it would be like fascinating to watch someone connect that dot at that moment, like actually watch it form in their brain because you take it for granted because that happened to us, too, once. Only it happened to us like in the 80s or the 90s, mm-hmm. right? So to watch that that thought like, oh, Tatooine, yeah. Um, or like the yeah. force, the voice, you know. Right. The Bene Gesserit are totally the Sith. Yeah. Right? Because they, 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 pl- they planted centuries. Speaking of the Sith, I, I read something not too long ago that apparently, I don't know where they got this, but if this is true, it upsets me. In that Lucas apparently originally considered that the Sith were their own thing yeah. and not dark Jedi. Yeah. And that the only reason Vader has a lightsaber is because he had been a Jedi who was corrupted and brought into the Sith. But that's why the Emperor doesn't use a lightsaber because they have like they are so like anti-Jedi that they don't want anything that resembles the Jedi. Their their whole thing is to exploit the force and its entire like and the, the like that's why he uses force lightning because he has no need for a lightsaber because the force is that powerful for him. Wow. And that's cool. I, I like that. why did they not stick with that? That would that's a that's so much more interesting storytelling. I'm reading the High Republic books and they kind of get into this a little bit. But that the basically the Jedi are one particular type of like denomination of force people right, yeah. that just won basically. I like that. Dune's good though. Have you? I mean, you've not seen it. No, I don't have HBO Max anymore, and I I cannot afford to go to a movie theater right now. <laughs> oh. Nor nor can I see it in IMAX. Don't put it on. Don't if you want. Uh, I know. I know, brother, who could hook you up with means of watching it. Dune's good. You should you should you should try to see that. I, I, I will say though. I will say though, I have found, I have found a theater experience. I can never go back, man. What's that? Seeing movies in Hawaii. <laughs> really? Why? Because first of all, the, like the, one of the big movie, the, one of the, so that my, my neighborhood theater is a local theater. It's consolidated movies. It's a Hawaiian nice. movie theater chain. Cool. And the opening before so you watch all your previews and then you get your like you know your graph you know most movies you have your graphic right you know like if you go to like i don't remember which one is the one that had like the roller coaster like you were going to a film reel regal so um you you got that well here they're called snipes by the way snipes all right cool so the snipe here is torches being lit Mm -hmm. people walking down to the beach chanting and then you get like a full-on hula dance filmed probably like in 1993 sometime. <laughs> um, and then it says consolidated, whatever, in like Futura font. And it's awesome. Cool. And then um, – but the other thing that makes us sing a movie in Hawaii beautiful is hurricane popcorn. Hurricane popcorn. Hurricane popcorn. I did not know this was a thing until I moved here. And it's a movie theater staple. So what hurricane popcorn is, it's you know, it's a movie theater popcorn. But then that adds furikake, which is seaweed, is a salt and seaweed and um, sesame seed mixture that's usually put on rice. Hmm. They put that in there with something called arare or mochi or uh, mochi crunch, which is a type of like crispy rice cracker. You, you, if you've ever you, if you've ever had Japanese like salty snacks, you've had arare. Okay. Um, and they put that in the popcorn. They shake it up, and so like you get this like popcorn that has like a seaweed and it's just it's it's so good nice it's changed the only thing the only thing i was disappointed by is that the theater does not have cherry cherry pepsi or cherry coke and 
Dude, I don't know, man. That's like my only time of drinking cherry sodas is like in movie theaters. And so I feel like I'm missing something there. But you gotta, you gotta smuggle it in, dude. You gotta go get your Maybe I'll just, go. maybe what I'll start doing is because I, I, I got some Coke Zero. Maybe I'll just like smuggle my own bottle like grenadine and just like <laughs> people think I'm like hitting it with whiskey. Nah. Yeah. <laughs> she just bring it, get like a two liter and put it in a, like a, like a, like a baby carriage. I'm like, oh, this is my son. But dude, food at the movie. Oh gosh, food is so expensive at movies. I forgot. Cause I had to, to like, train myself. Yeah, I had to train myself to not eat at a movie theater just so I could save money. And I feel yeah. like I I have, I have finally arrived at that point where like I can go to a movie theater and not get hungry, or I bring my. Yeah, own. I would. Yeah, when I would when I was seeing movies when I was still in Boca, I wouldn't buy. I wouldn't get food. Like I would just go. Yeah. Um. But here I did it because one hurricane popcorn brought it. I just got to do it. But the other was. <laughs> You know they've had a rough couple years. The movie, this this local, this small local theater chain. Yeah. Um. You know they were closed down the day that I arrived, and it was sad because all the movie posters of the movies that were in at that time were on the wall, and I just watched them every time I go to that shopping center, just gradually get sun bleached out. Oh. You know, and like there was like a real fear they weren't going to reopen, and so now that they're back, I was like, I'm I'll load up on the snacks, man. Yeah, they probably got those government grants, dude. Yeah, but it's like I'm gonna, I wanna, you, you, you know, you don't make the money off of the off the, off the tickets. You make no. the money off the concessions. That's so, true. That's true. Yeah. Um, and, and that's also why I probably should have seen Dune not opening weekend, because the theater gets more money when you see a blockbuster mm-hmm. after opening weekend. Yeah. I've learned all those little economic things, <laughs> but. Yeah, but but I wanted Dune, but I wanted Dune to succeed because I want that sequel, brother. Well, it's happening now. I know. They decided. Of course, it's gonna be two years. <laughs> yeah, I know. But that's that's good. Good for the crew. Yeah. Oh man, I wish you'd seen. We could talk about Dune. I wanted to see the new Bond movie. I want to see the new Halloween movie. I want to see Dune. I want to see Last Night in Soho. I want to see the French Dispatch. That movie only opened in like three theaters or something yeah but it's 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 gonna come out soon but like god this is like when i was supposed to see my comeback and i can't see any of them i told the guy when i bought my movie ticket i was like i have not seen a movie in theater since rise of skywalker (laughs) and he was like oh good luck man (laughs) (laughs) all right well father chuck thank you for coming out hey you know it's good it was good to have a riff sesh we haven't done so we haven't done this in a while so i know and they always kind of turn into, like, its own topic anyway, which is kind of funny. Like, an, a topic sort of organically comes out of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so hopefully hopefully, the listeners enjoy this as much as we do. Yeah, I hope so. I think I'm going to call it It's the 60s, man. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so thank you so much for joining uh, and listening. Join us again next time. Have a wonderful week. Good journey. Good journey.